Hello, and welcome to another edition of Health on the Line. In a few moments, you'll hear a fascinating interview that I had with Kate Bingham. But before we turn to that, I'm speaking to you during a week that has seen the most disruptive health strikes so far. So we at the Confed have been warning that whilst NHS leaders have managed the impact of the individual strike days very well, they're now growing increasingly restless about the impact the dispute is having on patient care. At a time when everyone in the NHS has been making solid progress to recover services after the pandemic, In particular, we've been talking about the four key risks that our leaders identified. Firstly, the risk to recovery of performance. Leaders are hopeful they'll be able to meet the government's target of ensuring everyone waiting over 18 months for an elective procedure gets one by the 1st of April. But that's a real challenge. And the longer the industrial action goes on, the more challenging it becomes. According to the latest national data from November last year, nearly 49,000 people remained on the waiting list. But also, now 10,700 operations, and that's before this week's action, have had to be postponed as a direct result of the strikes. Elsewhere, health leaders are also committed to the recently published and very welcome urgent emergency care recovery plan, but progress there again is likely to be hindered if strikes lead to delays in emergency calls being responded to. Another point is that primary care leaders and community leaders are reporting that the impact of the strikes on their services in the community have not been fully acknowledged. So as well as the risk to recovery, there's also a risk in terms of patients coming forward. As we've seen during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, the public have responded to industrial action quite often by not accessing services at the same level on those days of strike action. Now, in some ways, we're grateful to the public for that. It makes those days more manageable. But there's a real worry that if people are holding back day after day, then this increases the level of sickness in the community. And it might particularly impact certain groups, disadvantaged people, people with mental health problems. So we reinforce the call from NHS England to the public to use services in the same way as they would normally do on strike day. But there is a concern that if the public is holding back, it will be storing up trouble in terms of wider community health. A third aspect to this, which at the moment, thankfully, is is small, but there is a worry, is the impact of the strikes on local staff relations. Generally speaking, those relations have been really positive, including agreements on derogation and in staff crossing picket lines to respond to life-critical situations. But there is a worry that as this goes on, some of the national tensions might start to emerge locally. One leader we spoke to said that 300 members of staff had joined the union since the strikes began. Now, that's not a bad thing. We at the Confed support trade union membership, but it does, for example, mean that the impact of the strike will grow as more workers take part in walkouts. And then finally, There's the impact of all of this on our capacity to reform and innovate. There's a lot of talk about the NHS needing to transform and to improve, a lot of emphasis on things like virtual wards. Um, And now again, this is important, this is welcome. But if you're a leader and you're having to spend time cancelling operations, redoing staff, rotors, 
agreeing derogations, that's time that could have been spent innovating, reforming, thinking about doing things differently. So the industrial action cannot be allowed to become business as usual. And so we've repeated our call to the government to open negotiations, try to find some basis for us to resolve these disputes. And we've also repeated our call on the trade unions that once the door has been opened for them to push through that door so that we can end this increasingly damaging strike action. And all of this, all the things that we do in the NHS to recover urgent and emergency care, we do despite the fact that COVID is still there. The fact that we've stopped talking about it doesn't mean that it's not still there. In the seven days up to Monday the 30th of January, 4,621 patients were admitted to hospital with COVID. On Wednesday, the 1st of February, over 6,000 COVID patients were still in hospital. And in the seven days leading up to and including the 28th of January, 550 people died within 28 days of a positive COVID test. So COVID's still out there. It's still adding to the challenges. The people who are sick, the need to think about infection control. But of course, there's also the good news. And the good news is that the total number of people who've received their first dose of COVID-19 vaccine is now 40, and a staggering 45,398,000. And the total who received their second dose was nearly as high, 43 million. And the people who've received their COVID-19 booster or third dose was 34 Million. These are staggering numbers and of course the vaccine rollout continues to be a success story. And that's a great point to turn to our conversation, our interview today. And that's with my guest, Kate Bingham. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. I'm delighted to be joined by Dame Kate Bingham. Kate, as I'm sure everybody knows, was chair of the UK Vaccine Task Force from well, the crucial months of May to December 2020. After that, Kate returned to her day job managing partner SV Health Investors, where she leads on SV's biotech franchise. Amongst other things, Kate is a board member of the Francis Crick Institute and has helped found Dementia Discovery Fund, the largest venture fund to develop treatments for the disease. Uh, Kate, welcome to Health on the Line. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Are you in your beautiful rural idyll? In your book, it features a great deal because, of course, it's lockdown during most of the book. And so you're you're trying to perform this incredible act of, of bringing together the vaccine from your farmhouse. No, sadly, I'm in uh, central London in a urban built environment, which is much less uh, conducive to uh, being creative and working hard. <laughs> Um, can, can we just start actually with with the dementia work, which is not covered in the book um, at all? We've heard quite recently, haven't we, of what looks like a breakthrough in relation to dementia uh, treatment. Um, and I noticed that some of the experts were saying to us, let's not get too carried away with, with this, even though it is a breakthrough. What's your perspective on how important that breakthrough is and how close we are to accelerating our effective treatment of, of, of forms of dementia? Okay, so for your listeners who don't know the detailed uh, data that's come through, it's um, a new drug called Lucanumab, which uh, has been jointly developed, uh, led by Isai, the Japanese company, together with Biogen. And it's another 
um, antibody that removes the plaque in certain uh, Alzheimer brains. And what they've shown is a statistically significant uh, reduction um, that is, is, has quite a small clinical effect. So while it is a real uh, improvement, it's a small real improvement. So net-net, this is incredibly positive news because it's the first time we've actually had uh, proof that a, a drug is able to modify the course of uh, this particular form of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but it is only a very small step forward. So it, there's still a vast amount of work that needs to be done to, to actually improve the lives of patients, many of whom will not have diseases driven by uh, this particular mechanism. So I think it is positive, but we've got a long way to go. And I guess the question is, is, is that breakthrough, that particular drug, is it your view that it's the that that in a sense we're looking at the right place now in terms of where innovate because I think the thing about the history of Alzheimer's research is that we spent a lot of time looking in the wrong places, hoping that we one particular approach would crack in. It hasn't. Is there confidence that whilst this drug's efficacy might be relatively limited, we, it's it's directing our attention to the right place? Very good question. the The real trick is to make sure that you include the right patients in the clinical trial. Um, for the mechanism of the drug you're trying to test. So in the early Alzheimer trials, which included um, these amyloid beta antibodies, um, as it turned out, you know, up to half the patients included in the trials did not have um, plaques. So of course, they were never going to show a positive result. So as imaging has got better, and as um, the um, characterization of patients uh, becomes more precise, it's then become easier and better to in terms of patient inclusion in the trial so you can really demonstrate um, that the drug is doing something. In this case, what it shows is you, you probably need a very high level of drug to remove the plaque, but it doesn't have a huge, as I said, a huge clinical effect. But it's much like cancer. So if you go back 20 years ago in cancer, we used to talk about people having breast cancer or lung cancer or colorectal cancer. And now we talk about patients having, you know, triple negative breast or HER2 positive. And we basically talk about the, the drivers of the particular types of cancer. And then drugs are developed specifically against those drivers of, of, of different forms of cancer, which has led to a, a explosion in new cancer treatments and a vastly better uh, management of these different patients because we can define what are the underlying disease processes that are causing the disease. And where we are probably 10 or 20 years behind that in uh, Alzheimer's disease, where we're still talking about a sort of a generic Alzheimer diagnosis rather than what are the individual mechanisms that drive um, a patient's individual disease. And that's where we need to get to. And we've made vast, vast progress. We're still not anywhere close to having cures for everybody. And remember, historically, the only drugs for Alzheimer's are, and broadly dementia are symptomatic drugs. And what we need to get to for all diseases is drugs that actually alter the course of the disease and ultimately stop the disease, and if possible, to reverse the disease. So that is the holy grail. And in some cases, uh, we've been able to do that. But that is what we all seek to do. 
So, Kate, I'm, I'm going to come on to the work you did on the vaccine and your splendid book in a minute, but this is so fascinating. I want to just explore it a bit further. Um, what are the kind of limits on the new kind of treatments that are being developed, particularly in relation to this characteristic that you've described, which is that we're becoming more and more targeted in terms of understanding the specific nature of cancer and the relationship it has to the individual person and their genetic profile. What does that mean for the finances? Because of course, you know, in in the kind of traditional pharmaceutical model, what you want is a drug that 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 billions of millions and millions of people want and that you can give them the same drug and it's all very straightforward. But when you're talking about a drug which works with a with a pretty small group of people in relation to a pretty narrowly defined type of cancer. How does that change the economics in terms of R and D? So what we're talking about here is is precision medicine. So matching the the right drug to the right patient at the right time of their disease, and all the evidence shows that if you can do that effectively, then the costs of developing the drug is much much lower than if you are less. Um, targeted as to who which patients should receive your drug. So if you just think about it, if you can be pretty sure that 90% of the patients or 100% of the patients you enroll in a clinical trial will have a disease caused by that particular mechanism, then if you can show uh, that it works, then you know that, uh, that, that, that that drug will work for those patients, but you haven't wasted time and patients joining clinical trials where they will have no chance of, of, of ever responding. And the example um, is in Limpasa, which is a, uh, a PARP inhibitor called Alaparib, which we developed in or discovered in one of our biotech companies called Qdos Pharmaceuticals, which AstraZeneca um, then acquired. And initially, we, we developed it showing that this worked exquisitely well in patients with a particular genetic background. And AZ initially... Uh, started developing it uh, in all patients because that goes with your idea of give the same drug to everybody, except that didn't work. So when they went back and looked at the data, it was as you'd expect it to be, which was that those patients that had the genetic background did incredibly well and responded. And those patients without the genetic background did not respond at all. And so this for us was a beautiful example of precision medicine in action, such that those patients with the genetic background have done incredibly well, whether they're in uh, breast cancer, ovarian, and now prostate um, uh, cancer as well. So this is, this is where we need to get to. And the costs of development will be lower because the failure rate should be lower um, and the chances of success should be higher. So just the fact that you're selling to many fewer patients um, is not a bad thing economically. Um, I think it's a good thing both for the patients and for the drug developers because they can they can not waste money testing a drug on on patients that will never respond to this particular mechanism. So the the world is moving to a much more targeted um, pharmaceutical approach rather than the stack them high, sell them cheap to everybody where only a small portion of, of patients will actually respond. Yeah, and I want to come back to clinical trials later on in our conversation, Kate, because that's one of the lessons to draw from your vaccine experience. But let's let's just talk about uh, about the book, the long shot, <clears throat> which I enjoyed reading. I mean, it's uh, it's got moments of kind of exhilarating, uh, almost like a, it's got a kind of thriller quality at certain points when 
when the vaccines are traveling down the motorway and a lorry breaks down that that kind of stuff it's it's it, it's it's edge of the seat stuff but also I just wanted to say to you, Kate, one of the things that I really liked about the book was the time that you spend giving credit to just about everybody else. I mean, I, you could have written this book in which you would have been the hero, uh, and actually you spend a lot of time telling us about all the people that work with you in your team, across government, in pharma companies. There are, there are two or three people who, uh, who get described in, in much less positive terms, but, but, but generally you really want the credit to go out to the team. It was, I mean, it was a team effort, wasn't it? I mean, it's an incredibly positive story. Here are a group of people that are thrown together in the middle of this sort of wartime, uh, you know, lockdown. Um, we meet on Zoom, uh, and it's be, it was a phenomenal uh, bringing together of talent where people just got on with it, uh, used the expertise they had and the relationships they had to achieve some goals very, very quickly. So the reason to to be positive and to give credit widely is that's the truth. This isn't a one-person gig. Um, this is very, very much a, a team effort and one that we should be replicating much more broadly because it really was a very positive um, relationship between industry, academia and government. And that is not something that uh, I think has been widely demonstrated before and really should form a uh, blueprint for what can be done in the future. Um, and and actually, I think it was an incredibly positive experience and the people involved, um, I think, really enjoyed it. And there were so many things that could have gone wrong. Um, you know, that's what you you feel when you read it. I mean, obviously, the, um, the science might not have worked. But, you know, I guess when I picked up the book, I thought, well, you know, in the end, this is about whether or not the 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 the, the vaccine worked, and and then you have to find a way of distributing it. But you know, I hadn't come, I hadn't thought about what about the manufacturing and the challenges of manufacturing. What about the challenges of the of 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 the containers that it has to go into, moving it around, all of that kind of logistical uh, stuff. Which I guess for you, that that was one of your great strengths. It seems to me as as the chair was that you know because you come from a commercial background, you had some awareness of the complexity of the process that takes something from a laboratory and puts it in someone's arm. Yeah, so I've spent 30 years uh, doing that for therapeutics. So I deal with patients and we're trying to um, cure or at least stop their disease. So the whole thesis of running trials to test whether or not these, in this case, vaccines are safe and effective is something that uh, I've been doing for a very long time. Um, The manufacturing uh, was a was a massive, massive um, challenge. And it wasn't that it couldn't be done, but trying to do it really, really quickly was the bit that was difficult. And these are vaccines that are being grown basically in, in biological cells. So it's not something you can speed up uh, at all quickly. So what you're taking is you're starting at lab-based or, you know, bench-scale uh, equipment, and you're scaling up into these, you know, hundreds to thousands of litre um, sophisticated bioreactors, and it's not linear. So there was a lot of judgment and a lot of experts trying to make sure that the quality and the scale up was being done correctly, such that what you ended up with in a thousand or 2000 litre bioreactor was the same as what you started off with um, when you're in the lab. 
Um, and so those are very, very sophisticated skills. And we had a phenomenal group of people um, supporting supporting all of the uh, manufacturing and scale up. And that, of course, is a core part of regulatory approval. So, of course, you have the clinical side to show that, in this case, the vaccines were safe and effective. But you've also got to show that uh, every single batch you produce is identical and meets the quality specs uh, as approved uh, by the regulator. And that was a non-trivial task. Yeah, and I think one of the, the, the things that was really impressive in the book was the way the regulators themselves uh, operated, that, that they really threw the rule book out of the window in the face of this national emergency. And they d- adopted a very different kind of model of regulation, I mean, a collaborative model of regulation, really. Yes. So June Rain, who is the head of the MHRA, which is the UK regulator, um, basically she describes it as moving from being a policeman to an air traffic controller. So my experience historically of the regulators, whether it's in the UK or in the US or Europe, was it was a very scary uh, time whenever you met the regulator and you had to absolutely make sure you had the answers to everything. And in any submission, you had your T's crossed, your I's dotted, and everything was in perfect order. And what June and her team did was to say, that's not going to be the quickest way to get vaccines or therapeutics uh, regulated and approved. So why don't the companies um, start consulting with us as soon as they've got any anything to share whatsoever, and we can offer advice um, and assess what is there um, so that, and we can continue doing that on a rolling basis so that when the final data is ready, um, they can just look at the final, you know, phase three pivotal data or the final batch uh, release data, and everything else up will have been assessed and reviewed at that point, which means they can then take a very, very quick decision as opposed to the sort of six to 12 months decision, which it would normally take a regulator to approve um, a new drug or a new vaccine. So this collaborative approach or the rolling review process um, was masterful. Um, the EMA followed suit, as did the FDA. Um, and I think it's it was, again, one of the key reasons why the UK did so well. Um, and, and even though, for example, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine had not been uh, trialed in the UK, because of the, the very close relationship with the regulator and the fact that they had assessed all the data you know, closely as they went along, um, the MHRA was able to approve the Pfizer vaccine a week before any other regulator in the world. Now, that is an astonishing achievement. Um, and they've continued to act nimbly and quickly, but without any shortcuts whatsoever in safety testing. And that's the bit that uh, I think we just need to reinforce. So this idea of tearing up the rule book, yes, in terms of uh, how they regulate, but not in terms of what they regulate. So the the phase one and the safety testing uh, was expanded from normal uh, safety testing, and there was no acceleration or abbreviation of the safety testing whatsoever. So that remained the same. And then it was the the efficacy testing that was basically accelerated and expanded and and run in parallel. And that's what was was unusual. Towards the end of your book, you you draw out some of the lessons of your experience, and and one of them will be recognize will will be recognizable to anyone who's dealt with Whitehall, which is try to focus on the outcome. 
uh, and not on the process. Um, uh, whether or not one can do that in normal times, of course, is the great challenge. I mean, this co- this conversation, Kate, is all about your ideas and your book. And But yeah, I'll just share with you an insight that I learned in sociology many, many years ago, and which has always been useful to me, which is that Max Weber, the sociologist, he identified the distinction between substantive and procedural rationality. So substantive rationality is about ends, the rationality in terms of ends. What are we trying to achieve here? What is sensible in view of that? Procedural rationality is rationality in terms of rules. And what Weber argued, because of course he was the first person to really wrestle with the concept of bureaucracy, was that bureaucracies systematically replace substantive goals with procedural goals. They systematically end up being organizations where what matters is adherence to the rules rather than adherence to the ultimate outcome. And I guess the lesson of your book is it takes it takes an emergency like COVID to shift that tendency within bureaucracies to make rule adherence more important than ultimate outcome. I, I completely get that. And I, I recognize that in uh, my time in government. Having said that, we didn't change the rules per se. What we did is we just dramatically sped them up. So if you think about it, I was a uh, person brought in uh, to, you know, on a, on a six month or it turned out to be seven month uh, secondment. Uh, my job and the team team's job from, from the VTF was to make recommendations to government. Whitehall's job was to make sure that our recommendations, you know, were lawful and they fitted in with the government process. Um, but the people that made the spending decisions were the ministers. Now, none of that is different from what normally happens. It's just we did it much, much, much more quickly uh, than normal. And that's why I don't think it does require um, a sort of a tearing up of the rule book as to how governments work. Uh, And I think rules do need to be followed because I think it is important that there are checks and balances and that there aren't, um, you know, ridiculous, uh, you know, initiatives that are started that make no sense. Um, but having the focus on outcomes really matters and outcomes with, with deadlines really matters. So I had, I signed up for six months. I ended up doing seven, but I was very clear that we had goals that had to be delivered before I left because it could, wouldn't make sense to be, you know, chair of the vaccine task force and actually not, um, produce any vaccines. So, um, I think it's the combination of, of goals with, with deadlines but being done in the right way, which is what we should all strive to achieve. Yes, and look, the book is it's overwhelmingly positive. And I guess there's just a few examples, aren't there, of a couple of tendencies that we see. So one is treating something that is urgent in the way that you would treat something that is routine. And there were various times at which you just kind of had to ring up officials or ministers or even the prime minister and say, look, you know, this is being treated as if we've got all the time in the world and and it's, it's actually really urgent to get on with it. And and then a kind of a failure to recognise that the risk of doing something uh, is often much smaller than the risk of not doing something. That's another kind of thing that one sees a little bit in in Whitehall is that you can. It's I think it's a problem of human imagination. You know, we we can see the risk of commission, but we can't see the risk of omission, as it were. And again, something that you had to do was to remind people of the fact that. That, that this was not a journey that was going to be accomplished without taking some risks, including, you know, spending an enormous amount of money on things that may never have delivered the goods. But that was what was, and that's what felt different about this. Yes. And I think if you look at the two countries that did the best in terms of getting ahead 
um, of vaccine procurement, development, scale-up, manufacturing, development, and so on. The two countries were the ones with the two sort of most maverick uh, leaders, so Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. Each of them understood that if you didn't put cash up front to um, support the scale-up development of vaccines, um, you wouldn't get the vaccines. And that, I think, was a pretty ballsy decision from each of them. Uh, and that was not followed suit. I mean, other countries did not do the same thing, by and large, um, and were slower to to procure and develop the vaccines. So, I mean, actually, in, in my time, we spent, in, in terms of cash that was uh, committed, which could have been lost, um, during 2020, it was £900 million. But in the scale of the whole pandemic and the economic cost of lockdown, actually, that was a bar bill um, compared with what what was being spent elsewhere. So actually, the vaccines itself was was pretty cheap. I mean, we ended up spending, I think, about a little over £10 a, a dose. Oh, yeah, of course. But look, I, but when I was in government, you know, you could see very important things held up for the want of an approval for a few thousand pounds. So in a sense, it's not, you know, it's not how much that that's the point, isn't it? It's about people being able to grasp the, the whole project rather than trying to adhere to to processes that don't do it so but anyway look as i say it's an overwhelmingly positive story but what i want to turn to kate is 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 right at the end of the book there does there is an air of of of, of weariness uh, to an extent disappointment comes in which is that you you know one of your objectives your third objective that the prime minister said was to was to create the capacity to ensure the resilience of the uk going forward in relation to other pandemics and and you admit and i think it's really by the way impressive again that that you are willing to admit this. you don't need to admit anything because you are a kind of national hero and, and for what you achieved in the book but you admit that in the end you don't think you did really deliver on that third objective and so Let's look at a couple of elements of that. I mean, we talked about manufacturing. You you really wanted to create um, greater manufacturing capacity when it came to 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 to, to vaccine antibodies in the in the UK, and we haven't accomplished that, have we? No, um, I mean, I th- I certainly think on manufacturing we are a bit better than we were. So we did start going into the pandemic with a vibrant but low scale. Uh, manufacturing industry. So what we did at the VTF was basically to supercharge those companies that were already manufacturing and just scaling them up so they've got they had greater uh, capacity to start manufacturing sort of at bulk population scales. So some that some of that is in place, um, but some of that had basically has has been you know in in the case of VMIC Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Center um, that was sold. Um, to a uh, a US company that has now mothballed it. Now that's not helpful. You know, we we did so much to get manufacturing um, scaled up and working well that then and and then to lose that um, ability to actually continue to engage with industry because it these vaccines uh, have been phenomenally successful at. Uh, um, treating uh, at preventing severe disease and death, but they haven't been successful at preventing transmission. Um, they're still expensive. They the durability is uh, questionable. So we have to be giving boosters and and so on. So we've got a massive need to continue to innovate and to continue to, ve- to ve- develop next generation better vaccines. Now, if we start selling off our manufacturing capability 
and don't have leadership um, to engage with industry and work to explore which of the you know the new formats or the new designs can actually develop better, uh, more durable, more robust clinical uh, protection. Um, you know we're going backwards, and so my my main criticism is actually the lack of ongoing leadership in government to to deal with the new innovation. I mean, government is very good at continuing to uh, order, you know, more vaccines. So, you know, the program management, I think, is exceptional. And their ability to continue to crank the wheel once it's clear, you know, which wheel you need to move. Um, but it's the innovative, risk-taking, exploring new products and new uh uh, in this case, vaccines, that is missing. Um, and that applies both to manufacturing scale-up um, formulation, um, but it also applies to clinical development. So that's why I'm critical, um, because we did put lots of that in place. Now, it wasn't finished, um, and it needed to continue to be led and continue to be developed. And that's what's not happening. Let's turn to another area where I sense that you you feel that that the potential that you created has not been as fully exploited as it should, and that is in kind of clinical trials. You know, the NHS is a massive resource, and you built, of course, through your work, the register of 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 of, of people wanting and willing to participate in those clinical trials. We talked earlier in our conversation about the importance of having as many people as possible available for trials as we move to more precision medicine. We're still in a good position here potentially, but. I think you're a bit frustrated at the pace of change. In 2020, if you remember, the lockdown in the summer, well, from March, was pretty effective at reducing viral transmission. Um, and it meant that that some you know, early companies like Pfizer didn't want to run the trials in the UK because we didn't have enough infection going on. But our view was we felt that it was highly likely we would have a big increase in infection in September, you know, the autumn when schools and universities went back. So we wanted to be able to say to the vaccine companies, look, come and run your trials in the UK because we will have a group of volunteers who will be ready to be enrolled in trials um, just at the time when we're going to have infection spikes coming back into the UK. And so we spent a lot of time trying to get and build a registry of people, not of fit 25-year-olds, but of those people who were most vulnerable to the disease. So we needed to be sure that the vaccines that we were going to be trialing uh, would actually be effective in those people that needed the vaccines most. So that, that meant the elderly um, and the people with underlying um, uh, diseases and so on. And so we did succeed in that. And, you know, as of today, the vaccine registry is about 550,000 people, of which over a third are over the age of 60. So we've got a, a terrific pool of, you know, socially minded uh, uh, volunteers who have cons- have agreed to be contacted about clinical trials. It's different. They haven't enrolled in the trials yet. They need to be told, you know, what what is available. But these are people who have signed up to help. And um, over the course of, of the pandemic, you know, we had they ran, they were involved in 18 different trials across seven different vaccines. So it was been hugely, hugely helpful. But the key thing was that we asked everybody as they signed up, would they be willing to be contacted about clinical trials outside COVID vaccine studies? And 94% said yes. And the reason we asked that question is we saw this as a potential 
um, cornerstone for a much bigger registry of patients um, to allow anybody with any clinical diagnosis where their disease was not properly managed with existing treatments to be told about, well, here are the clinical trials that you could be eligible for, you know, talk to your doctor and see whether or not this makes sense. Because fundamentally, if we're going to make advances in the treatment of, you know, chronic disease, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular, um, you know, lung disease, kidney, I mean, all the different major chronic um, diseases that we face in an aging society, we need to get uh, better drugs to patients. And we can only do that by running clinical trials. And we're better to do it than in the UK. Everybody has an NHS number. We're a highly diverse society and healthcare, the quality of our healthcare is very high. We have very uh, committed and experienced physicians and research nurses and, and trial setups. And so this, I do think the UK uh, could be a test bed for, you know, innovative new medicines for the world. And of course, we were that in part for vaccines. So the vaccine trials that we ran, the data will have supported, you know, um, re cl clinical registrations around the world um, to get those vaccines approved in countries uh, that needed them. And we should be doing the same thing for pharmaceuticals. Um, and so I would really like to see the, the scale of clinical trials that are being run uh, in the UK uh, go up orders of magnitude. I mean, I think anybody that has a diagnosis where they're, they're their disease is not properly managed, should be thinking about clinical trials because it's only by testing these new drugs that we will make steps uh, and, and really help both the patients and their families. Yeah, and, and, and I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for that out in the service, Kate. I mean, unfortunately, I think clinical trials have been impacted in the same way as almost everything's been impacted by the kind of gap that currently exists between the demands the health service faces and the capacity we've got. But it is important to have a positive story about the future of the health service. And I think that the scope the NHS has, the role that you've described, is is very much part of that story. So, Kate, one last question before uh, before I let you go. And, uh, you know, this is a podcast that's listened to by NHS leaders. In, in terms of your leadership journey, what did you learn about leadership from the period of, of, of chairing the, the the task force how, how are you a different leader after that than you were before <laughs> well I think I'm a I think I'm a grateful leader that uh, I was able to work with such uh, fantastic people because uh, I mean the key thing the key role I played was to make sure that uh, we had the right people responsible uh, for the right different aspects of what we were trying to deliver. So that's picking the right vaccines. So that's the scientific understanding, the relationship with industry to make sure that uh, they did consider the UK as a potential partner with whom to work. Um, it was manufacturing, clinical development. And then, of course, um, the whole issue with uh, other countries, because this was not a race between countries. We were highly collaborative, working with countries around the world. And we wanted to make sure that anything that we had learned, we could share. Um, and then, you know, again, program management, commercial negotiation, there were so many aspects where having the right people uh, in the right jobs, uh, where I've not even met all the people in my group yet. We, we were incredibly efficient on, on uh, 
team calls, but not in person. So I guess, I guess for me, the reflection is get the structures in place so that we had a very transparent uh, process of communications. We had very clear goals, which were articulated and understood and widely shared, um, and make sure you get the right people to deliver against those goals. You know, we, we don't micromanage people. If, they, if they're if they getting on with it and they're good and they're communicating, that uh, uh, is just fine. You just continue to, to allow them and give them the space and the support to deliver um, and make sure that uh, from a from my perspective that um, the expectations are set correctly. So what I didn't want was that everybody um, sort of from a political perspective to think this was just a slam dunk and, you know, buying vaccines is the same as buying PPE equipment, which it manifestly is not. So it was very important to to have you know clear communication about what to expect uh and and where the risks are um so that there were no you know huge surprises so from a, from my perspective the, the the leadership side is is about the building the team um setting the goals setting the time frame and and letting great people get on and do the job sounds like very good advice kate well, uh, the long shot, the inside story of the race to vaccinate Britain is available in all good bookshops and uh, online book retailers, and I can strongly recommend it. Kate, thanks so much for joining us on Health on the Line. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.